Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucker, spaniels? <laughs> yeah, I think I made that one up. I think I did that one. Hi, I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. Uh, I feel like every word is going to be my last word. I don't know why I'm not breathing properly right now. Perhaps it's because I'm holding my breath. It was weird. I, I sang last night in public again uh, for, I don't know, I've done it a few times now, but I, I went out after the uh, Trepany House show rushed out, went over to the Baked Potato, where Brendan Small of Metalocalypse fame, he and Steve Agee do a little show there, like monthly, uh, where comedians play some, you know, come up, do some jokes, and then do a song. So, of course, I go there, you know, and Brendan and I are in touch. He's been on the show a couple times. I've helped him sell his signature guitar with uh, Epiphone, and now he's got uh, a Gibson Explorer. But pretty soon, this is just going to be a music podcast. Not really. Oh, by the way, the guest today, who's on the show today? Brett Easton Ellis. Uh-huh. I think there's a weird connection today because uh, I'm going to do a little uh, piece of a Mick Foley interview in a minute, too. I'll explain to you in a second. Let's talk about my future career as a musician. What was funny was that you go do a rehearsal with Brendan and the boys, and uh, Dean Delray was also on the show. My buddy Dean Delray, Let There Be Talk, is his podcast. He's a character. He's a rocker, real deal rocker. He did Let There Be Rock, and he's saying it exactly like Bon Scott. Exactly. And I walk into that, and I get a little intimidated, you know, because these guys can really play. But I plug in, and as a, you know, a bedroom guitar player or a living room guitar player or a garage guitar player, i.e. a guitar player that does not generally play with other people, especially not professional musicians, you know, I kind of want to jam. So I'm there, I'm cranking it up, getting a little feedback, noodling around, tuning my guitar. Brendan's like, you know, you don't have to have the volume up to tune it with the tuner. I'm like, wow, buzzkill, buzzkill, Brendan. How about we just jam a little bit? Well, we really don't know how long we have the space. We've got a couple songs, a couple more songs to work out. Where's the fucking rock and roll heart? Let's waste four hours playing the same song over and over again. Come on. Maybe we'll get a couple of girls to hang out and listen to us play the same song over and over again. You know, when you're in bands in high school, there'll always be a few friends hanging around, maybe a couple of girls smoking cigarettes, drinking a beer, and they just sit there and watch you stop and start and do the same song over and over again. Every band that I was in in high school, none of them ever played out, and we only knew four songs. But I got to say, I had a great time, and I'm not a guy that has a great time in general. The Trippany show was great. Uh, audience had a nice time, and I you know, ran over there with a gal. I ran over with, with the gal I'm dating. 
All right, it's out. It's out. No names. Dating a gal, and she paints. She's a painter. She's a real deal painter. She makes a living painting. Whole other world, man. The art world, whole other world. I go to her studio. I look at what she's doing. I'm like, holy fuck. That's inside of you? There's a balance to it, man. Real artists that really do it. I mean, she makes a living selling paintings for reals. To know somebody or be with somebody and and to be intimate with somebody who can paint. She's an abstract painter. And it's sort of like, you look at that fucking thing and it's like, that is finished, man. You know how to finish something and it looks finished. And in that form, that's not easy to do. That's some solid craft to, to, to hang out with somebody that does a completely different thing than me. That just like is fucking great at it. It's a little daunting. It's a little daunting. It's uh, we're trying the, uh, she has her life. I have my life. And when we're together, we just have some nice time trying that as opposed to I'm up her ass she's up my ass and there's constant drama all the fucking time and I'm yelling and apologizing uh, more than doing anything else anyway so she goes with me over to uh, the baked potato and uh, I don't know I just like it I don't think I'm going to change careers or anything but I think it's 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 the hobby I need to engage in and just do it man I just it's like I always talk about playing. It's like, so get some guys together and just go play. I got a drummer. There's a rehearsal space down the street. Uh, Brendan was good, too. It was cool. We had a moment where we were actually trading licks, and then we were playing licks at the same time. And I'm like, next time around, next time I do this, Almond Brothers, Skinnered. But see, there's part of me that doesn't want to be that guy. Like, am I that guy? Am I the 50-year-old guy who's like, let's do some oldies? Maybe I am. But if you go real old, then you just make it your own. Hard to make Skinner your own. You can, but you you, you know it's going to be ironic. Um, there's no way around it. You're going to play Ernest Skinner. It's got to be the right room. I can play Ernest Skinner, but I, I don't know if I would. But I, I don't know. You go back to the blues, though. It's like, I'm going to own this fucking Jimmy Reed song. I'm going to own this Howlin' Wolf song. They made it to be worn. The blues were made to be worn. God damn it. Sometimes I like what I say. So uh, occasionally I'll drink some tea with the uh, artist lady. I'll sip some tea. Pow! Look out! Just shit my pants. Haven't done that in a while. Just coffee.coop. Interesting comedian conversation today. Occasionally ask comics, you know, you do a bit and you're like, I I know that somebody else is doing a bit on that, but is it like my bit? So uh, I had to text Whitney Cummings today to... uh, clear up a, a, a discrepancy there might be between our squirting bits. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been uh, sort of uh, discussing squirting a bit on stage occasionally. It's not, it's not a centerpiece bit. Uh, I don't do it all the time. I've been playing around with it for a while, but I remember that she did a, a, a piece on squirting uh, at the Oddball Fest dates we had, so I had to text Whitney. I'm like, uh, hey, man, I need to talk to you about a joke. Uh, what's your squirting bit? And she texted me her squirting bit, and then I texted her my squirting bit, and they were not the same at all. And I felt great. I'm like, so we're not we're not crossing streams. <laughs> yeah, look at this is kind of a pee joke with the squirting. All right, look, you guys. Here's what's weird. I used to host a morning show on Air America Radio back in 2004, 2005, and we did a live broadcast from a soul food restaurant in Harlem once, and Brett Easton Ellis was on that broadcast. And oddly, the other guest was Mick Foley. This t- completely coincidental, completely coincidental. 
Uh, Mick uh, Foley, who's a friend of uh, the the show in a way because he used to do my radio show. I've guest hosted with Mick back in the day. We did some bits on the radio. He's a great guy, uh, one of the great pro- professional wrestlers. Uh, he stopped by because he's making the rounds promoting a new documentary he's in called I Am Santa Claus. And he's, he's actually Santa Claus in the documentary, which is now available on DVD, Blu-ray, and iTunes. We'll have a full episode with Mick in the near future. So here's a snippet of me and, uh, me and mankind. The movie's a Christmas movie. Well, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a Santa Claus movie following yeah. Santa's year round. So it could be suitable. <laughs> for, it's for anyone who likes It's a year-round Santa movie. <laughs> it's, it's really for anyone who likes, you know, stories about complex characters. But, uh, you know, I'll go... I think people will go back after they watch it the first time, and they'll probably want rewatch like, the last 20 minutes every year. Because it's... It makes you feel good. Who directed it? Uh, Tommy Avalone. Yeah. Uh, he got in touch with me uh, three years ago. Yeah. Seeing if I just want to be one of the, you know, a good documentary has like some subplots going right. on. And he wanted to know if I would be the guy who wanted to give it a shot. Like, right. really want to give And I dressed up before. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, if you. Sure, you have. You've done a lot of dressing up. <laughs> <laughs> but I specifically, like, I'd, I'd been. I'd been Santa Mick, like, for D. Snyder, who's a friend of mine. And sure. I've done it for the You never wrestled overseas. as Santa. I did wrestle as Santa you once. You did? And the funny thing is, <laughs> I wrestled in Afghanistan as Santa. The idea was a good Santa versus bad Santa match with the good Santa wearing, the, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the fatigues. Um, and what was the, the bad Santa wearing? The bad wearing? Santa was supposed to be wearing, like, a grungy Santa outfit. Uh-huh. The problem was, like, I couldn't actually... Oh, camo. They don't wear fatigues anymore. Yeah. I couldn't fit into the camo. Right. So we inexplicably <laughs> had not the bad you Santa. No, he he dressed <laughs> as one of the troops. Right. I was the good Santa with the huge outfit, and we just uh, cleaned it up a little bit, and we had ourselves, a, a you know, a, like a ridiculous Santa match uh-huh. uh, for the troops. Right, so you're familiar with the Santa outfit. Oh, I, lo- I love the Santa outfit, but yeah. I'd, never, I'd never even thought about being the guy. So Avalon calls you up, and he wants you to do this thing. He wants to know if I'll try, you know, not just try it, but follow my progress. What was the pitch? He said uh, he knew I'd, uh, he, he was a director. He'd always had um, always had a wrestler in one of his projects. Yeah. I mean, it was just a cameo. Right. He started this Santa thing. Because he, he grew thought, up with wrestling. He's a wrestling grew guy. Grew up, yeah. Huge, huge wrestling fan. Yeah. Uh, and he was wondering, how am I going to get a Santa? I mean, how am I going to get a wrestler in this yeah. Santa project? Yeah. One of the guys pointed out, you know, Mick Foley's like a year-round Christmas guy. He's got a, <laughs> yeah. he's got a room dedicated to Christmas year-round. And do so, you? Yeah, I do. Okay. I mean, when I moved back to Long Island in 2000, like, yeah. I moved into a house that needed a lot of work. He could have started anywhere. Right. Like bathroom, yeah. kitchen, yeah. bedroom. And I was like, no, I want a Christmas room. Like, I want my own room. And so we- So he'd heard about that, and, he, and you were like, the, that, that, that's enough to compel the film. He thought it would be a nice little offshoot, yeah. you know, where, where he's following four guys, you know, who, who, you know, some of them, you know, live for this six-week period. Uh, one of the guys needs it desperately, not only emotionally, but financially. And yeah. uh, one of my guy, the guys who's turned out to be a good friend of mine after the filming, uh, who, who appears in the, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, he appears at my house on Christmas Eve and, like, creates christmas magic you know like you oh, couldn't, yeah hollywood couldn't duplicate and he he legally changed his name to santa claus yeah. giving you some indication of his commitment and so i was just going to be the guy they followed to see if, you know it wasn't until the night before 
I uh, I did my appearance as Santa at Santa's Village in Jefferson, New Hampshire, which is a place I, my mom and dad had taken me to in uh, the late 60s. Really? Three and four, yeah. And I revisited it in 96 with my kids. We've been going every year since 96, even when we lived in Florida. We would take our vacations to the White Mountains in New Hampshire for whatever deep hidden psychological meaning someone wants to read into. But uh, let's do it right now. All right, for closure. <laughs> you got your kids. You grew up with it. Here you go. It's a tradition. There you go. Yeah, and I imagine that it was a way of me for me to escape to the best and happiest moments of of my childhood with your parents. It's like that suspension of disbelief. So even though somebody's buying a ticket. Uh, hopefully appreciating what wrestling is instead of you know doubting it for what it's not it's the same way with santa like we say santa's for the kids but it's really about bringing the adults back to a place where they were happiest and yeah. when a guy looks good enough you know and when he embodies that spirit mm-hmm. and there are guys out there who believe they are touched by the spirit of the original saint nicholas and they're not crazy you know? yeah they feel like they become that guy, yeah. and and then for adults, you know, in my case, in the in the movie, I'm Santa Claus. You see me, it's it would be impossible to script a bigger smile than the one that I have at the end of this movie. It's like, you know, we did the uh, extra commentary track. The the director was like, "Your face looks like it's hurting. You're smiling so big." Yeah, it's a it's a nice uh, piece of. That's uh, it's film. good. You you for years you provided uh, adolescent mostly men with the outlet. <laughs> For their rage and frustration in a healthy way, and now you're bringing pure joy to the children. You're covering all your bases, yeah, Mick. Yeah, doing what I can, Mark. You're covering all your bases. So when the when your time comes, you'll just be a big yin yang up there at the gate of whatever. I, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. <laughs> Do you still go to uh, to New Hampshire with your family? Every year, yeah. Do yeah. all of them go? Not not every year, you know, but my, my daughter's 20. She still likes going. And then, uh, you know, I'll reach out to the owner and, uh, you know, th- this year I'll be like, can I do it? Yeah. And so they'll let me, you know. You're going to be Santa? They'll let me do it for a few hours, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're not going into a ring uh, acting crazy. Now you want to go into the ring and be Santa. I do, man. You know, when you have that kid on your lap and uh, oh. and he tugs on the you know tugs on the beard and, they and his eyes light up. Yeah. Oh, really? When, when they... I'm in that role, my kids are little. They go to Santa's Village and they say, that's Santa's helper. But right. uh, I mean, I, I go out on a limb and say I'm, you know, when I, I you know, I'm going to bleach the beard and yeah. on the 24th. Yeah. And then I have a yak hair wig. I did try bleaching the hair and it just looked ridiculous, just yeah. orange and yellow. And then when I'm that guy, you know, like, and I have a couple of good interactions, like I feel it the same way I used to feel the wrestling characters. So no one could tell me I'm not the real Santa when I'm in that chair. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I congratulate you on this new less risky role. This new West Ricky character. Thank you, Mark. All right, that was Mick. Look forward to the full episode. Go grab that movie. It's a cute movie. A lot of heart. Old Mick's got a lot of heart. So, Brett Easton Ellis. What can I tell you about that? Intense dude. Smart dude. The first time I read Less Than Zero, I had graduated college, and I decided I was going to take a train across country. I got on that train with Less Than Zero, Blue Movie by Terry Southern, Legs by William Kennedy. I'm like, gonna do some reading, gonna do some drinking, gonna get a sweeper car. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the rails. Sweeper car, at the level I got the sweeper car is basically a bathroom uh, with a bed in it uh, that's moving, and you can look at usually the worst part of a town traveling cross country. So I was on the train. I went from uh, Boston to Chicago. 
Got a shoe shine. Went from Chicago to Memphis. Saw the Ducks at the Peabody Hotel. Went from Memphis to Austin. Met two girls on the train. Decided I had enough of this shit. I'm getting off in Austin and I'm flying to Albuquerque. Fuck the train. I did read Lesson Zero, though. It's a fine memory. All right, let's talk to Brett Easton. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Did you make your own sandwich? Good for you. Real. You made your own sandwich, brought it over. I don't know what people expect from me. (laughs) What kind of person do you think I am? I'm dining at a French restaurant for lunch, and I'm like, you know, have a monocle and a cigarette holder. No, I made my own sandwich. Well, I mean, well, that's well, I mean, that's the idea that you landed on. So, I mean, you must know that some people think that. I think there was a period in your life where uh, you were living quite the uh, urbane intellectual, running about the town existence, right? Wasn't that your image at some point? Is, is it? Has it started? Sure. Are we doing this? Why not? Um, yeah, that was the image of me, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was I, the image. That's what what happened when I would be photographed or whatever. And I never felt that 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 my life was like that. I was a kid living in New York, but it was and, calculated, right? I mean, you you know, you decided that you were going to appear this way. The look right. was calculated to a degree. Yeah. There was the kind of idea that I had. This kind of empire I had, uh, idea I had of the American male writer that I came of age. The with. New York, uh, the New York version. You were guys are the coming off the version. tale of uh, Plimpton, Mailer, right. uh, Roth, right. the warriors of literature. Exactly, and 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 they all dressed a certain way. I would see them at cocktail parties in the fifties or the sixties, wearing Pictures. suits and yeah. and ties and and. You know, we wanted to emulate that look. And so, yes, to a degree, that was calculated until I could not hold the pose for it any longer. You and Jay and who else? Basically, that was it. If we want to be real about it, (laughs) they tried to turn it into this big group of people, and it just wasn't. It was a calculated thing that the media came up with. It didn't really exist. Jay was about 10 years older than me, and so I was really hanging out when I first moved to New York with my college friends. I mean, the people we just graduated from, we were living in New York together. Where'd you go to school? I went to a very small college in Vermont called Bennington Everyone goes to Bennington. I knew, do you know Mark Spitz? The writer for Spin, I, I think know he's or younger than of you. Of him, yeah. Tracy Katsky. Well, that's a different generation, but um, everyone goes there. You're talking about Jonathan, Jonathan Latham. Latham, Donna Tart. Yeah, they um, were your they were your contemporaries. They were my contemporaries, right? So these people that go to Bennington, they come. They're already they're intellectual. That they, you know, it's a groovy school. 
It's an in, it's intellectual, but it's also when I went, it, it was it. There was two uh, classes. There was basically the new wave kids who were very sophisticated, and then there were the hippie kids. A lot of hippies at Bennington in the eighties. Sure, um, it was a very hippie school, and it's you know, and it's a really really small school. So, so you had the avant garde and the earthy people. The the yeah, yeah the, basically the people that thought they were avant garde, and then the the freaks. Yeah, and yeah. everyone stoned. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's on. That's the one thing they had in common. Every, yeah, that, <laughs> Everyone's high. That, yeah, my my roommate was a complete hippie guy, and our one bonding experience was over drugs. It's so funny because I had that too. I, I I my roommates there was like three or four deadheads, and me who had come out of Albuquerque, you know, thinking I was an arty guy. It was mm-hmm. very interesting. There was something relaxing about them, wasn't there? Um, not necessarily for me. And I you have to understand, I wasn't a relaxed guy anyway. So I really wasn't relaxed. It was hard for me to get relaxed. And my hippie roommate, who I had for about a year, um, uh, I don't know, we kind of got on each other's nerves. Uh, and I can completely understand why looking back. Um, yeah. um but no, so, uh, you know, Bennington is this tiny college and, uh, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. You only got 600 kids going there. Right. 600 kids go to this one college. Mm-hmm. And the uh, freshman class is the biggest. The sophomore class is the smallest because Bennington has the highest attrition rate between freshman year and sophomore year. Mm-hmm. About half the class fleas. Yeah, drugs are a bad thing. It's not drugs. What is it? It's the idea that Bennington uh, wants you to create your own curriculum. It wants you mm. to propose uh, tutorials for yourself. Yeah. Any, and so, and a lot of kids can't handle that. They want to be told what to do. Sure. And Bennington basically says, okay, we're going to, you're, you're here, we're giving you all this fa- these faculties. Uh, you can have all these these great uh, writing spaces, uh, painting spaces, music spaces. Go to it. You're here. And a lot of kids just, they think it's going to be okay, and they freeze. So they transfer out to more structured college. Much more structured college. Well, yeah. what did you put yourself, what did you put together for yourself as your curriculum? Uh, a novel writing tutorial, uh-huh. uh, a couple of music classes, because I was a musician, and I, I thought I was going to be a double major, a music major and a creative what writing major. What did you major. play? I played uh, keyboards. I played piano. I played guitar. I played bass. Really? Yeah. You do all that stuff? I did do all that stuff. I really don't play that much anymore. You let it all go? Kind of let it go. Not even not even as a hobby? No, not even as a hobby, really. What kind of music were you into then? What was the big idea musically? Avant-garde art music? or No, no, garage? pop songs. Oh, garage, pop. garage pop. Uh-huh. That's what it was. And oh. so I was, in, I was actually in a band with uh, John Shanks, who's a huge music producer uh, now, who's won a Grammy for being the producer of the year, I think, three years ago, like has produced everybody. And he was, uh, when I was in high school, him, him, he and I had a band. And, um, in high school? I, I was 17 or 18. Where was he, this? Uh, here in L.A. Where, in the Valley? Yeah, in the Valley. And, um, so you're a music guy. I was a music guy, yeah. And so I thought the band was going to, we, we uh, got it together in 81, 82, and I thought I wasn't going to go to college. I thought I was going to stick with this band. I think it was called Line One. <laughs> Line One. That's, and that's so, a good name. And we, I, I really thought, okay, f- screw college. I know what I want to do. I want to be a writer and I want to be a musician. And um, ultimately... It just wasn't going to work that way. It wasn't going to fly with my parents. wasn't going to fly with my grandfather, who was, you know, one was footing the bill for Bennington. And so I kind of like that, you know, 
prevailed, and I and shut I, the, done. the music dream down. Were you guys gigging? Were you out there playing? No, were you laying no, tracks? No, we were down? just we were laying tracks down, but we were not. We never played live anywhere. We just I, didn't know really how to do that. I did that with my parents too. Like I don't want to go to college, and I, and then uh, you know ultimately they they didn't they didn't do they didn't hardline me, but they were like, Re- you want to think about this. I mean, you want to stay in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You want to be what? What are you gonna do? And that kind of freaked out. And uh, I didn't have the grades to get into a good school, so I ended up going to a, a small, kind of, not great school. Well, how do you think I ended up at Bennington? Bennington doesn't even look at your grades. It seriously? Yeah, you don't even have to give SAT scores. So it's Bennington. just a money thing. I mean, well, it's a pretty- I think it's two things. I think it's a money thing, and um, I think it's um, you submit samples. I submitted samples of my writing. Not the music? Uh, no, not the music. I just okay. I just submitted writing samples. And um, my grades were bad in high school, yeah. and my SAT scores weren't great. I had no interest in high school in anything other than writing yeah. and then music. I didn't have, I just was, just had no patience for anything else that I was doing. When did you graduate high school? 82. So yeah, I graduated in 81. I'm a little older than you. Mm-hmm. Did we already established that on your show? I, I don't even we remember. Did. I think so, we did. So, well, so, so that's how you get in. And I think basically, I mean, I'm still very connected to the school now after a, a part of a, a long time of like, I disagreed with some of the stuff they did in the 90s. Uh, like what? You no, know, they had these, these sexual harassment harassment things going on um, that were, and they fired a bunch of teachers and a, a, a large, uh, uh, large population of my graduating class just like shut down on the campus and didn't like the direction it was heading in. And, it's, and so recently I've been um, much, uh, much happier with the direction the college is so going you're, and, and you're involved somehow? I'm involved. Really? And after many years of not being involved, I'm seriously involved with Bennington. And I just think it's a great place. And there, I think it's ultimately going to be the kind of school that is representative of where kids want to go. I think it's crazy now where you, in, in order to get into a really good school, yeah. you've got to be like a rocket scientist, a chef, a poet. You've got to have a 4.0. You've got to have all of these extra Or some family work. connections. Yeah, or family connections. But you still, I mean, I don't even think that's going to help you at so, but but also like you know how are you involved? Isn't that something that like the uh, the uh, the the alum writer does? Do you go back? Do you teach for a few weeks or do you? No. Are you on the board? I'm not on the board. You just call a guy and say, "What's going on over there?" They keep me posted, and sometimes <laughs> they want me to tweet something. Oh, and they—I uh, mean, I gradually got in the last you know, two or three years back into you know being very pro Bennington, and uh, they have a new uh, president uh, who was just out here in L.A. And I—I I hosted a couple of parties, uh, fundraiser or whatever it was. And um, how yeah. are those parties? How's your Rolodex? Pretty good still. Uh yeah I, sure I mean I'm I'm just not that social anymore yeah. I'm just not I'm I just don't feel it I mean I I prefer you know staying in we're, and we're middle aged men right and I just don't feel <laughs> the need to I mean you really it really has to be enticing for me to go out at night right. to call up an UberX and yeah. like get myself someplace it just the you know the idea of just like staying at home and you know watching choosing a movie on Apple. Yeah, is like so. What now? Pleasant. So you grew up here in the valley. In the valley, what town? Sherman Oaks. Are your folks still here? Or are they? Uh, my dad is dead. My mom is still here in the house that I grew up in with my stepfather. So you go there? Went there last night. And uh, the relationship is good. The relationship is really good. Yeah. 
So how did you what, what how did you grow up? I mean, what was your dad? What was his story? He was in uh, he was a real estate investment analyst, and he worked at Colwell Banker, and then he uh, he then had his own company, which was the Bob Ellis Robert Ellis Company, and commercial real, real estate commercial real estate. But he also like would. Um, I guess sell buildings. I mean, his big sale was the U.S. Steel Building, I think, in 82 or 83. And what his job basically was is that if someone wanted to buy a building, yeah, he would go in and check it out, say, this is what you should get, this is what it's worth. And he was kind of an agent in a way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if he, the building sold for this much, then he would get like a 10% right, sure, sure. And so he really made the bulk of his money in the early 80s, mid-80s. Um, and yeah, that's what he did. And but when I was a kid, he was just he was in um, kind of like high end real estate. And you got siblings. I have two younger sisters. So like, what? What? Now, how complicated was that family thing? I mean, do you like? I, I say this because, you know, I know that uh, I just get a feeling because of the the tone that you're a fighter, and you know, I recently had problems with my father that I just resolved that are cyclical. Mm-hmm. So how much did, and I find that people who are creative and certainly of a certain type of disposition are in conflict. I'm projecting all this onto you. Uh, you're absolutely right. <laughs> that You're totally right. That the sort of journey to find a better father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, oh, haunted me. It haunted it, me all my life. Like, what, what was the dynamic with you guys? I tuned out. I tuned out very young. Like when you I, shut down? I kind of shut down and lost myself in books and film and music. And that was just kind of my world. Um, the dynamic in the house was, and I've written about this extensively in a right. novel I wrote called Lunar Park, where, you know, my dad was problem. He was a problem. and For you or in general? In general, for everyone in the house. And he was... <laughs> the community of home. Yeah. And it just kind of like, I, I just couldn't really deal with the, uh, I, I want to say the negativity. What was the, the, the how problem it... with, I, I think he was just an unhappy man. But how did it manifest? Drinking. Oh. Drinking. Anger. Anger and Very drinking. Angry. Yeah. Kicked the dog once. That a, was really bad. A dog kicker. I know. Kicked the dog. And that was just. Did he kick was... you? Didn't kick me, but there were a couple of scuffles, a couple it, altercations. And drunkenness. Yeah, yeah, in with drunkenness. So Ugh. I kind of, I just became very pragmatic in a way. I kind of had to shut down. I knew I was there until I was about 18. And I just learned to navigate. Right. I learned to navigate around certain things. And one was his anger and um, his inability to, um, I don't know, to connect with his children. Um, and, you know, we would have. Right. I mean, it if wasn't it was like a- I, yeah, I mean, and it would, and you know, I have to say it is a really shitty thing for a guy to not have that father. No. And horrible. I, and I see how it has wrecked certain things in my life. Like I, what? Because like you <clears throat> like to have a father, but to, but you know, you know, he's there. They, he's not emotionally supportive because he's incapacitated for one reason or another, whether it's narcissism, drinking. Oh, whatever. narcissism and, was a big, big part sure. of it. Sure. Yeah. So then you, you just. Boomer narcissism. Yeah. yeah horrendous. Yeah. So then you're just left to, to your own devices to try to develop some sense of self that usually has no closure and you wander Completely. the world looking for that Completely. closure. And then you just, your, your whole life is spent reacting to this thing. And then you stop. 
And you have to stop. You get to a point where you just have to stop doing it. You hit a wall. You know, you just can't keep looking for that. Yeah. And it's futile. Yeah. It's ultimately futile. And so you just have to process it yourself. But, you know, and I, the other thing is that I've noticed that I see guys, and it's not a lot of them, but I see guys who've had have really good relationships with their fathers. They're more together. Of course. If you They're have just to, more together. Even if you have one grounded parent... That isn't either the, you know, the, if they're not completely codependent to, like, it's hard, I think, to have a good parent who's signed on to the bullshit of the bad one for a period of time. Right. Like, eh, but, like, how did it incapacitate you emotionally, specifically? Uh, in terms of. You just, you just said, like, you know, you, you, as an adult, you've looked at, you know, how, what the effect of it is has been on your life. Well, I think it may, it's made me, it's made a lot of my relationships with other males mm-hmm. uh, fraught with a kind of suspicion. Uh, a um, it just made it, it made my male relationships complicated in a way more complicated than I think I initially thought they were until at a certain point I looked back and said not everyone's your dad you know not that's everyone right. is your dad that's right that someone had to tell me that right <laughs> no I know not everyone is your dad and that is yeah that was a big moment and then just dealing with it in therapy did you have that thing where like I find. Like, I'm not even sure if when I was younger, maybe 15, 20 years ago, that I might have been effectively a borderline personality. I don't know. Like, because I know you grow out of that sometimes. But but I found that, like, my emotional requirements of friends was too big. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just like. Massive. Like, you pick one guy oh. and it's like, well, you're the guy. You're it. Mm-hmm. And these oh, people, that. these people are like, "What do you want from me? I don't understand <laughs> what you." Oh God, this is bringing back so <laughs> many shit, so much shit from my twenties. Okay, I was exactly like that. It's and, the worst. But add on that I was also famous. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really well known. That is a horrible, toxic thing for. But but I but I'm I'm kind of exaggerating that. I mean, I was also a good friend, and I was a funny guy, and I was you know I had a lot of friends, and I, I wasn't an asshole, right? I mean, but I know exactly what the you're emotional talking about. requirement. Exactly, and that is what I was. I was searching for it. I needed it right. so badly. Yeah, I couldn't breathe if I didn't have it. Now that doesn't manifest itself in, in terms of you going out with your friends and acting like a dick at all. It's much more subtle than that. Right, and more insidious in a way. Right, and you can do it while smiling and taking people out to dinner. It, right. It's not like you know yeah. grabbing someone literally by the lapels and saying, "I need this from yeah, you." Yeah. You don't do that. No. It's, it's so yes, that was a huge requirement I had, and uh, I, that's a huge regret too. Because I know that it fucked up relationships I have with my male, a couple male friends. Right. That it, I just was a massive problem that they were still attracted to and wanted to be friends with. Sure. And we had this mind game yeah, shit yeah. and they would start competing with me and be super competitive in a way that I I the didn't drama. understand it. Yeah, it, and it was yes it was and, and, and the fact that you're in your 20s yeah and it's just like craziness well I'm, I can't imagine that like well, how old were you when Lesson Zero was, was published uh, I was 21 so I mean that's crazy it that, is ridiculous well, that book ridiculous. was huge and knowing you even now the, the short amount of time I know you I can't even imagine the insanity of that of of <laughs> Of, of being lifted to that level and then being just sort of almost like, you know, it was almost like the New York press was like ready. The literary press was like, they're finally, they're here. Um, it wasn't that nice. <laughs> you know, this is the weird thing about, it was about, you know, half of the reviews for that book were bad 
and they really targeted Simon and Schuster, my publisher, as kind of you know, what are you doing publishing some like twenty-year-old drug addict's diary? And you know they got a lot of flack for that. But again, you know, so the book, you know, for some for whatever reason, word of it was a word of mouth book because they only published about five thousand copies of the thing for their for their first edition, and not expecting it to do anything, not a penny for promotion. So they kind of just dumped it out there, and I was happy. I mean, I didn't care. Five thousand copies, awesome. And they and then I did I did a couple of uh, you know promotional pieces for a couple newspapers, and then it kind of built, and it didn't really become a bestseller until about five months after it came. Out. It was a really slow build, but it seemed like that the timing that once the, the 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 press got hold of it and got hold of the idea of you in New York and maybe you right. and Jay right. And, right. and whatever was happening in the mid eighties in New York, which wasn't great, was it? Uh, I mean, you get it was sort of like this weird post disco unclear time. Completely, I'm, yes. That's that's a, yeah. That's actually I, I was trying to figure out a way to put it. Like, looking right for up. definition, yeah, it was. and 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 maybe you guys provided some of that juice, you know. Um, we might have. I mean, was Tamma Janowitz in that crew, or she before uh, yeah, you guys? Sure. No, she was there too. You Slaves know, in New York. So there was this, like, there was some vitality coming. Well, but there were also a lot of, you know, there were editor editors and people in who were very cool editors, like the editor that discovered me, this young guy named Morgan Entrican, who was like only about six or seven years older than me, and he had acquired lessons here originally, so he was out on the town, you know. Gary Fiskajon, who was Jay's editor. Um, so, so there was this like group of literary people, and yeah, they they were in fashion spreads. Yeah, you know, it right. was that. I mean, it it's kind of hard to, uh, I don't know, reimagine that for today. Well, no, because like if you really think about it, there was a period where when you talk about the heroes that you guys were emulating or trying to sort of be the legacy of, there was a time, and I've talked about this before, where. Where New York intellectuals defined a nice chunk of of, of uh, culture, and then it started to sort of contract. You know, certainly, uh, you know, then you know the party times happened, the disco times happened, and I think that there was a struggling of the intelligentsia of New York to to sort of hold on to that uh, that cultural relevance, and and also the city itself. You know, I didn't care. <laughs> I know, but am, I, I, am I, I right? You are you were right about all of that. That is completely correct. That is right. an absolute correct reading of the time. I I was twenty one or twenty two. <laughs> Who were these adults I was hanging out with? They were all ten years older than me. <laughs> I really had my own friends, and I never considered myself to be part of the intelligentsia. There was Susan Sontag. There the was real the, ones, like you. The guy I was who, I was like the yeah. just a pop culture. The people that you studied no. in college. You know, like Susan right. Sontag. There's always Susan Sontag, right? Which is right. sort of like I kind of understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. But, but that's real intellectual stuff. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yes, I would be at parties, and there would be Norman Mailer and Gay Talese and Kurt Vonnegut and yeah. John Didion and all of the literary right. uh, luminaries that I grew up with. One of the awesome things about uh, you know becoming well known is that it does open that door for you to meet these people and you're in parties with with famous right. people looking uncomfortable yeah right 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 exactly exactly it's a bunch of famous people standing around not knowing what to do but i think i was just kind of young enough to just not even like let it overwhelm me or anything I were was you still detached fun. or you were having fun i was having fun you yeah. weren't shut down i, I, I no i I had shut down in a different way, and that came about with the writing of American Psycho. And what that came out of, in a way, was, oh, I have to grow up, and I have to grow up in this miserable, yuppie, Reagan-era society. But there was a book in between them. Oh, yeah, there was a book. Yeah, I published a book. uh, I had already been 
I almost had finished the Rules of Attraction once Lesson Zero came out. So Lesson Zero came out in the summer of 85, and then I had finished... And that uh, was a, sort of a sequel? Uh, you know, all the books are kind of linked. Yeah. Characters appear I read in Lesson, I read Lesson Zero on a train... I was. I decided. Yeah, I decided that. Like, I, you know, after I think it. I, I don't know. It must have been right when it fucking came out, because it was like I'm going to take a train across country after college. So maybe it was '86. It was around that time, and I got a stack of books. I had Legs by William Kennedy, Lesson Zero, Blue Movie by Terry Southern. Um, yeah. I remember the books I chose to mm-hmm. read, but when I read Lesson Zero, I, you know, I was sort of, uh, you know, an aspiring intellectual, and I thought it was profound. To me, the style of it, because I just plowed through the sound and the fury, and mm-hmm. I thought that the lack of description was genius mm-hmm. in a way that these characters, you know, you really had to, to sort of hang on to the tone of their words mm-hmm. and and the and the actions, and, and you become part of that if you were that age. Yeah. So I thought it was a I thought it was a great a great book. It changed my mind well, about thanks. things. Thanks. I mean. Uh, to get back to that, that train thing, I used to do that. I used to take the train cross country with a bunch of books. I, I sometimes did that. Just to, I would take it from you know you'd stop in Chicago, yeah, change trains from New York, and then I'd, you'd have to go down if you were going all the way across. Like in my recollection, in order to go all the way across, you couldn't just go straight up the top. Or maybe it was my choice because I went from Chicago to like Memphis and over. I don't know why I did that because I think I wanted to see Memphis and I had some romantic idea about the train. I did too, and I still kept that romantic idea for a couple of years. I liked it, and I, and it was I just preferred to like not have anyone have any contact with me for like three or four days, and there was something about that that was so soothing to me. Instead of flying cross country, or whatever, I just I just liked that. So it, it's so strange that you mentioned that because during that time, eighty six, that was your, when, that was around the time where after I started having immense regret and anxiety about being like a well-known person because the first year is fun. Yeah. The first year is great. And then you kind of have an anxiety attack in terms of like, maybe this isn't so great. Well, but also how do you, how do you feed it? How do you, how do you maintain, how do you live up to the expectation? You, you ignore it. You just, you just do whatever you have to do. You don't, you, you just, you just do what you oh, have really? to do. Oh, really? That none of the anxiety was around that? Like now I'm this guy, people are expecting things of me and I got to. Okay. Yes, that is true. That is where the anxiety stemmed from. But the only thing you can do about that is to just move on and do what you wanted to want to do. I mean, did, there's nothing you can. Right. Did you notice on the train? The one thing I remember about that train ride is that you realize that the, the whole sleeper car is really just like, it's being in a bathroom. Because, and, right, there's just the fold down <laughs> bed and then there's the, the toilet. toilet. Right. And then, like, when you're on the train, I, I remember that there was drama unfolding on the train. Like, there was a, a, a guy who was traveling with his kids and some woman who was traveling with her kids. And I sort of watched this relationship unfold as we moved cross country because you're sort of limited to this train and you get out, it stops for a minute for a soda. And I just saw them sort of become a couple over. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. Or you hang out in the bar car. Yeah, the bar car was there. I was drinking at the time, and then there was that. They really sold that the 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 car with the seat with the glass, glass ceiling. ceiling it's just yeah. filthy. Yeah. And the weird thing about the train is that you literally what you see of America is the other side of the tracks. Like That's you're true. you're going through just the, the worst wreckage. parts of big cities. <laughs> exactly, like these you know parking lots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know fast yeah. food pieces but, of equipment that are rusting. A lot of that, but there was just something about it during that period of my life that I the Soothing. isolation of it. I, I just really, I really liked it. All right, so you're you're freaking out. Uh, yeah, I was freaking out about becoming a man in a society whose values I found reprehensible, but I still wanted to belong to the society. 
What do, you, what do you do with that? I wanted to fit in, which is something that Patrick Bateman says at one time in American Psycho. But that really was a book that stemmed from me not wanting to be a part of the society, but also wanting to fit in, if that makes any sense. You're kind of trapped. What do you do? I mean, do you just go off into the, you know, the woods and live in a cabin? Or how do you, how do you navigate through the society? How do you, you want to interact with people, you want to engage, but you're, you, you don't like the you know what the, were the, the world but but see the thing is is that you sort of entered uh, almost immediately out of college a very you know high-minded set and a very lofty sort of uh world you know to be kind of hanging out those parties it's very insulated i mean w- what values uh, you know just by nature of being in that group you were already operating against i would imagine some of the values that you had a problem with yeah but but actually i was with a lot I was with a lot of my friends who were my age. Again, I want to stress, we were 23. We were just out of college, uh, you know, and so we were all kind of, I don't want to call say a united front, but we would talk about this a lot. Like, Jesus, this is kind of like, this is ridiculous. Our country is ridiculous. This world we're about to enter into as men is ridiculous, and yet... What other option is there? Right. So it was kind of, you know, what what really was the other option? It's, it's not just New York society. Right. It's, I'm not just talking about the intelligentsia. I'm right. talking about the world, right. the world order right. in a way. Yeah. And, okay, so this is what I have to do to be a man? Yeah. This is what's expected of me, this kind of to pose? Fit in. Of, to fit in. Right. right. And then, you know, so American Psycho was kind of my exorcism of those the, the anger and the hopelessness that I felt about that time. And then pretty much after I finished it, I said, oh, okay, I can move on. And that's really how writing books has always been for me. There's a problem, there's something painful, something, some kind of drama in my life, and I really write the book to explore it. Explore it. Yeah. And by the time I'm done with it, I've kind of like processed it in a way so that I feel was, kind of better. But was that all cultural, or were you dealing with you know childhood stuff as well? I mean, in terms like because that character, the the sort of weird detachment, but charm of it all was kind of disturbing. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, how does how do you create a character? How does someone like that? Uh, and I've been thinking. I, I was thinking about this guy, this kind of faceless yuppie, moving in this world. I never had a clear vision of what he looked like. I knew he was a reflection of all of these things he was obsessed with. But wasn't that the time the romanticization of the stock market was around that time as well, right? It was. It was. Well, actually, I just moved to New York in 1987, and it was about five months before the crash, Mm -hmm. uh, four or five months before the crash. And then, um, yeah, and I was was writing American Psycho at that time. Right. And I had been hanging out with guys that I had been introduced to, older guys who were working on Wall Street. Um, from various friends of mine, their older brothers or whatever, and I would I would go out with them thinking, okay, I'm going to find out how this all works. I'm going to find out what they really do. What are they really doing? Yeah. And they really weren't interested in that. They were interested in going out, socializing, nightclubs, high-end restaurants, spending the Hamptons, money. spending money. Um, and that really, this whole idea, and doing a lot of drugs, and it, this whole idea of the book that I was going to write about, you know, I think slightly earnestly in like a New York novel about an unhappy guy on Wall Street. And I'm so glad that didn't happen. But 
Well, what, well, it's it is it is a somewhat earnest novel about an unhappy guy on Wall Street, but you know, with, it's, how but that, it's hallucinatory. It's well, crazy. How that, how that unhappiness manifested itself became a little uh, richer than the just basic unhappiness, right? And and so yeah, and so because of I, I just remember one night sitting in a, yet another super expensive restaurant and with these guys just talking about bragging about their tanning machines and their their who's got the best haircut and you know who's got the nicest summer place in the hamptons i it was so clear to me i said this is a novel about a serial killer i don't know how i made the connection i said this is a novel about a fucking serial killer and that's really kind of how the genesis for american psycho happened and then creating patrick bateman patrick bateman a lot of people forget had appeared in uh the Rules of Attraction. He is Sean Bateman's brother. Sean Bateman, if you've seen the movie Rules of Attraction, was played by uh, James Vanderbeek. Um, and so Sh- uh, Sean Bateman, who's the main character in the Rules of Attraction, is having problems with... We kind of find out that his whole... Everything he's told us about himself is kind of a lie. And as his life kind of crumbles in the last section of the book, it's revealed that, oh, he's not a farm kid. Oh, he's a rich kid. Oh, he's from New York City. Oh, his father has a ton of money. Oh, he has his asshole older brother, Patrick Bateman. Right. So Patrick Bateman's introduced in the last like 30 pages of Rules of Attraction. And as I was working on American Psycho, I was thinking, who is this guy? And I thought, it's it's that guy at the end of uh, Rules of Attraction. It's Why Patrick not? Bateman. Yeah. And so... um. And that's just that's kind of how it happened. Well, it's interesting though, like that moment you had where this guy's a serial killer is that in in the midst of of being who you were, you know, uh, among these people whose whose who they decided that you know what one does with their life is irrelevant other than to make um, uh, enough money to be as ex- extravagant as possible, and 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 that's what stockbrokers do. What's your job to make money? That's the job. You know, that's right. So, so the detachment when you were just describing it of being in to hearing them talk about that, the weird sort of emptiness of it all. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't they be talking about killing? Why wouldn't that be the next thing to find meaning? So you were exactly. almost in kind of like projecting a, a quest for meaning that could only end there. That's true, and I do think that the violence in American Psycho is Patrick Bateman's uh, uh, desire for. Something real, right? Tangible blood, flesh, yeah. Yeah. death. Instead of this kind of abstract world of brands and consumer items, and you know, bad pop music, and right. you know, clothing, and and strange food being served to you, and that cost eighty five dollars sure. a plate. So anyway, so yeah, that's where that's where that all came from. So and were you happy with the film adaptation? Uh, the film adaptation uh, was, uh, you know, I, I look, I never thought you could make that book into a movie ever. And I remember when uh, first person who was interested was David Cronenberg. So David Cronenberg and I met a couple been, of times. That would have been amazing. Well, David Cronenberg also was uh, insistent on, like the script needed to be only 70 pages long because it takes him two minutes to shoot a page. Yeah. He wanted no scenes in restaurants, yeah. no scenes in nightclubs, and I don't want to shoot any of the violence. Yeah, well, why would that happen? So I, said, uh, so I yeah. went off and I rewrote, I, I wrote my own script and I was burnt out on the material anyway. And so I kind of did a pass that, you know, was kind of the greatest hits from the book, more or less. And he didn't like it. And uh, so he hired another writer. That didn't work out. Ultimately, and, I, and I, it went through director Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio were going to do it at one point. And it finally landed uh, with, uh, you know, Mary Heron and Gwenevere Turner, who did the adaptation. And I, you know, I thought, how are they going to do this? How yeah. are you going to do this yeah. book? Why would you do this book? Because it, it was conceived 
as a, a, a piece of, you know, a, a novel. It was right. conceived as a novel. It wasn't conceived as a script. It wasn't conceived as a movie. It is a novel thing. It's 400 pages in the mind of this guy. And he's a completely unreliable narrator. You don't know if some of these things happened or not. You don't even know if the murders happened, yeah. which to me is interesting. It's yeah. much more interesting not to know that than to definitely know Do that. Do you know it? I don't know it. No, I, I don't know it. Okay. Um, but so what the movie's going to do, <laughs> yeah. what the movie's going to do is regardless, is going to answer it. He's right. going to have done them because right. we're watching it happen. Uh, it's, you're answering questions that aren't that interesting, I think. You're, you're, you're answering questions that the answers aren't that interesting. I guess that's what I meant. Right. And so, um, so the movie is faithful to the book to a degree, I guess. I guess what a lot of people liked about it who hated the book is that it clarified the humor of the book. Because a lot of people just read that book straight and said, what the fuck is this? It's a, yeah. Are you kidding me? It caused trouble, It's didn't not it? funny. Yeah. This is not funny. Murder's not funny. Well, yuppie, you know, and, and I... People oh, miss satire sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and so that was that was a big problem with the anger. But it's interesting the in the, in the, so you... So, so the movie was okay. The movie was fine. The, I just didn't think it needed to be made. But I think, like, ultimately, after watching the movie not too long ago, again... I it, it you know there are certain points where it's not clear whether he's really doing the murders. I mean they're happening on screen, but the but the the this sort of weird his ability to control his environment so specifically becomes dubious after a while. That you know could he really luck out that much in his ability to kill? No. Right, and there's at, at, look that's true of the book as well. Right. I mean the descriptions in the book are kind of comic book outrageous. You right, know? right. It's like you know reading a Warren comic, you know, yeah. seeing how people are dismembered, and you know, <laughs> and it's uh, you know highly imaginative. But um, yeah, so so the the movie look also what the movie did is it kind of like made. Uh, it gave the book kind of a second life, mm-hmm. um, and you know, as a writer, you're always kind of grateful for that. And the, it wasn't a hugely popular movie, but it, you know, it did okay. It's a, yeah, it and I think, and I think it, what the most important thing it did was, uh, and the movie's fine, um, is that it clarified for people who were confused the intent of the novel, which was black satire, right. And a lot of people just saw the book as like a, a listing of horrors, a catalog of horrors. Yeah, I don't know. And, Some people are so uh, numb to the to satire; they just can't cross the, they can't make the jump uh, of yeah. of like even if you tell them it's a, it's a dark comedy. It's like right. there's a lot of people died. Yeah. No, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any other way to read that book. There know? is no other way to read that book. That's the only way. It's the only. It was meant to be read that way. And I and I, you know, when I said earlier. My problems with the book now, about 20, 25 years after it was published, are I sense a kind of earnestness and intent Mm -hmm. that I feel that there was still a remnant of that writer wanting to satirize the Wall Street guys and just show them how foolish they were. And and even though ultimately I don't think the book fully lands there, there are traces of that for me. And I wish it had been a little pure that I got that I stayed focused more focused on to yeah. what my aesthetic design for the book was taking those fuckers down and not yeah yeah <laughs> and I rewrite I mean but I but it but in the end it was just a very personal book and it was really about three years what I was going through what I was fantasizing about my reactions to things and then again what happens is you know you um you finish the book kind of relaxed but in you, a way you had gotten that morbid in your in your in your anger and in your mind and in your frustration not into not into 
not to the depths right. of Patrick Bateman, and I wasn't fantasizing about killing people right. necessarily. Um, though in my probably in some horrible way, I was devouring everyone in sight. Sure, I was devouring male people in yeah. sight. Like you've got to do this for me. Yeah. I'm eating you right now. Yeah. Um, you know. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I knew that he was a serial killer. I knew that there were going to be murders. I knew that there was going to be violence. And I kind of left those chapters or spaces blank because I kind of didn't really know how to write them. And ultimately, I wrote those, uh, it was about 10 pages of stuff interspersed throughout the book. It's not as much as you think. It it might be very heavy. And I think that's why people imagine this is a complete... You know, catalog of horrors, but it's not. It's not that much. But I mean, just, but but, per, but personally, I mean, where were where were your frustrations leading, like in your own life and relationships and that kind of stuff and whatever unresolved stuff about your father and all that stuff? Was this a like was the writing of that some sort of hitting of bottom for you? Uh, no, no, it was kind of like um, dealing with stuff. It wasn't right. hitting bottom at all. It was dealing with stuff. Right. I felt I was at the bottom. Yeah. And it was a way of elevating, getting, out. getting myself out of it. Right. Um, and sure, you know, I was. Look, I looked at a lot of the values of my father. I was I was thinking about that a lot. Um, he died about a year after American Psycho came out. But before then, I was seen, especially in the 80s, when, when he had made a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up as a rich kid. I mean, right. I think people have this idea that I did. I grew up in Sherman Oaks. My we were middle top or middle class. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, but when my father really did begin to make serious money in yeah. the 80s, there was a very different man. Um, and, I mean, he really bought into the excess of right. that decade. And I have to admit that impacted me as well. And, you know, and then he also died $10 million in debt. So, you know, you have this, you, you kind of get that person. Well, there, yeah. And also there's that idea of like, he does, you know, it's false rewards. I mean, you know, like after you grow up with a man who is fairly, you, you know, without conscience or empathy emotionally in terms of his own family. And all of a sudden now he's got a fortune. It, it's hard not to think like, where's the justice of that? No, I mean, it was just also, I mean, yes, the justice in that, but also uh, just, you know, sadly kind of glamorous. I remember, like, I mean, he really, uh, you know, he well, he lived it up. Yeah. He lived it and up. And where were you with the, you know, I, I know that you're not necessarily as vague as you once were about your sexuality, but yes. the mid 80s, you know, was a pretty wild time and a scary time. I mean, how much did that play into your frustration or your mindset? Well, look, I, I'd, I'd always known I was gay from an early age. Yeah. And to me, it's like the most boring thing possible. I was never ashamed of it. I never felt like I had to come out of anything. Yeah, it yeah. was like, oh, shit, this is another thing I had to deal with. <laughs> and it's really, and it's such a and it's such a boring thing, too, because it's like, you know, it's, sexuality is like the color of your eyes or whatever. It's just, yeah. it's just such a, yeah. nothing can be done about it. Right. So I, so I put that on my list and I was like, okay, so this is what I got to do. Uh, again, pragmatic. Got to navigate here a little bit, you know. Um, but I would say that I, I never was in a kind of closet. I was in the glass closet, we call it, where people know, but you yeah. don't go around announcing it or yeah. saying anything about it. And the problem really was in the mid, well, after Lesson Zero came out, I never I never said I was straight or anything, but I would be coy about it because there was at that time, uh, you know, a kind of ghetto ghettoization. Yeah. 
of gay writers. You were automatically put over here. You were automatically reviewed here. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to do that. I've got enough like weird bisexual sex going on in this book. And mm-hmm. I don't, what, do, what do I need to say? I'm not going to walk around with a girlfriend or anything. But the, the one thing that did happen was, you know, AIDS hit mm-hmm. in about right. 83, 84. I first heard about it while I was at Bennington. And Bennington was a super promiscuous campus. I mean, I'm sure every campus is, but Bennington was even more ambisexual than Because most. it's smaller. So. Smaller. Mm-hmm. And the kind of um, male it attracts is all over the place. And and understandably so, bef- pre-AIDS. Yeah. You know, it, there was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of stuff going on. So when AIDS hit, we were kind of the last... Uh, or the, I guess the first generation that closed the door. Right. The door was closed on us, and we kind of survived. Right. You know, it was people who were older, not a lot older. I mean, I had a classmate of mine from high school who died of it in the, in the 80s, but we kind of just got it. Okay, we can't do this. We can't do this. We're not going to do this. Let's get into, get into a relationship or whatever. And so it really wasn't that wild t- a time. When I got to New York, you know, it people were just scared. And so right. I immediately got into a relationship that lasted about seven years that was monogamous. Got you monogamous through. And got, got me through it. But it was, uh, you know, that the wild time had, had stopped. I never I never experienced it. So it was, I never well, saw that's, it. that's probably a, a good thing that it was just college wild time and not right. bathhouse wild time. You, right. you dodged a bullet. Right. <laughs> no, that's true. But I also was never the kind of guy who would did, go yeah. to bathhouse. Yeah, I was I, not, just it's, not my kind of thing. Yeah, it's a little scary just to think about kind of. I mean, yeah. it's exciting, I guess, but it's you know, it's a little scary. <laughs> I think the reality of it is a would uh, it would be like a wake up call. I think the reality of like, oh, this is what a bathhouse is really <laughs> like. It's not like it is in a porno film or whatever. This is like, oh, those. Ki- oh, okay. Uh, you know, the the body fascism <laughs> in porn is. I I don't think necessarily carries in over. Carries into. The bathhouse. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It, it seems that there is a pretty high premium put on uh, uh, body fascism in the gay community. Oh, yeah, there definitely is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. and, a, and a big problem of, you know, gay shame and triggers yeah. and stuff like that. But it's like if you let that, you know, I think it's, it's hard to get old in a, a community that puts such a high premium on sex. Well, isn't that kind of... Oh, you mean, you mean the just, the, just the gay, gay community? Yeah, well, yeah, or the, acro- or, but look, it's across the board, sure. and it's especially true for women as well, very yeah. difficult for women. Yeah. You become invisible after yeah. a certain age. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I just I know it's not politically correct to say it anymore, yeah. but man up. You know, yeah. that's really what I feel like. Um, there was that ridiculous <laughs> Facebook thing. Did you see that Facebook I campaign that to too. ban man up as a term because oh, it's gender God. specific? Really? And I mean, oh, yeah. And it has like Justin Timberlake holding up a little thing. So do you ever say woman up? That's that, that's the kind of like, you know, I don't know. You know. I'm not sure where all this I don't know where where it, where it takes language after a certain point with we're all. You know, so inherently hypersensitive of the impact of a sort of established meanings of words or, or misunderstandings of words. I don't know where I don't know where we end up language wise. I, I don't know where it all ends up. I, maybe it'll be interesting. I don't know. But like, will it be interesting or will it be boring? Will everybody be sort of you know half panicked about how they're addressing anything or what they say when they're angry? Angry, even if they're not, you know, if it's not coming from a negative place. I don't know. Well, it's you know, well, it's it's considered. I, kind of elitist now to have opinions that are negative and i noticed that you know 
I just last night, I, I tweeted something last night. Yeah. I had, um, I was done with work, and so I told a boyfriend, let's just watch a movie or something. Yeah. I, I'm not going to work anymore. And he said, sure, put on a movie. And so I, for some random reason, I wanted to watch Marathon Man, the Dustin Hoffman movie. Why wouldn't you want to watch that? And yeah, and then I noticed, though, that he had already turned to his phone about 20 minutes in. And he's I much, said, so you're not. He's younger than you. Yeah, he's about 27. Yeah. And just, he said, yeah, I'm just not, I don't, I don't know about this. I said, okay, let's watch. We, we're, we haven't watched season four of Louie. Yeah. Let's start watching that. Yeah. Uh, we're caught up season three. Let's start watching season four. And what about that episode that, that, that got a lot of buzz on social media, uh, the fat girl episode? And he says, yeah, sure, put it on. So we put, and he's a fan too. And I'm a big fan of Louis yeah. CK, but I watched the fat girl episode and I kind of just sank a little bit. I said, really? You're, you're letting the fat girl just editorialize and this pity party that she's having in front of you and you're not like engaging with her at all. The camera's just slowly panning around her and, and you're letting her make this point that, okay, sure, yeah, we should all love the fat girl. Sure, it's not fair, whatever. And I just kind of thought that episode tanked for me. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I, I tweeted it out. Uh, something about the fat girl episode tanked and, you know, this is like the worst Facebook thread or whatever. And, of course, I, w- I w- was waiting. Here you go. The barrage of... there. Now, true, there is a 10% to 15% like a, agreement. Like people yeah. go, yeah, you're right about that. Maybe they should have done that last scene differently. And then there was the barrage of, how dare you say that about Louis C.K.? You made the canyons. You made the canyons. How, how can... You know, and it's like, I'm just kind of used to that, you know, reactive thing that goes on in the culture without kind of placing things, remarks, opinions, tweets into a context. I could never understand how people could get so upset well, about Well, the delivery tweets. system is now limited context. I mean, like I was reading, like last night I read some book uh, by a woman named uh, Hodson, Chelsea Hodson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Pity the Animal to Chat Book. It's a small book. It's more like a, it's sort of an essay slash poetry. It's not, I don't know if you'd call it poetry, but you know that kind of fragmented cultural criticism. Yeah. She's bringing together, um, you know, the the Marina Abramovich performance piece and, and some things from, you know, weird manuals of, of sales manuals and, 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 and mannequin presentation manuals. It's one of those kind of high-minded, uh, but, you know, clearly, you know, astute intellectual uh, criticisms of, of of women as objects and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it'd been a long time since I kind of like engaged in that type of writing, and you know it was weird. It's ironic that before I'm talking to you, that there you know that there was a time where that stuff was important and the conversation around that stuff was important. I still think it probably is important, but that context of really following through with with a with an earnest critique or or yes. a well founded intellectual critique yes. and following through with a, a reasonable discussion around the possibilities of the implications of what you're saying is just fucking gone. So if you're going to you know present it to the animals exactly. on Twitter, if you're going to say here's some meat yes. and you know expect anything different than exactly. than a frenzy, <clears throat> no. then and it's a shame because the 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 sort of time it takes to process and and have a a reasonable conversation about aesthetics or 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 sociopolitical meaning, you know, it's very limited now. It's insulated. It's not going to happen on Twitter really. Oh, Twitter no, 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 is no. all frenetic. Right. Right. And and it's 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 in 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 then in, in those moments you don't realize like these are just idiots sitting at home. This is not some sort of you know structured debate on anything. Right. And right. you're and you're dealing with a, a media platform that feeds on on controversy. Right. So the but you're right. But the overreaction to things is not only limited to Twitter. It really is part of what is going on kind of nationally. This lack of context for things is really, as 
never been higher. No, it's horrible and, because <clears throat> there's no there's no sense of history anymore. In, you know, because of the <clears throat> internet, which is the is it is the collective unconscious. It has replaced you know any sort of organic idea of um, of you know, genuine human community. That there, there nothing needs to happen. The time frame is no longer important. So if history is obliterated. There's no point of reference, no point of evolution, no point of of, of sort of the, the gaining of wisdom. It's just everything happens in a now. It doesn't matter what part of the history you use to attack somebody else. And right. it's it's troubling. You know, that yeah. we're you know, that there's no context for Hitler anymore. Right. <laughs> it's, it's right. Just, to some kids it's like, oh, the guy with the mustache, you know, that that kind of bothers me. Like like last night when I was reading this woman, you know, Chelsea Hodson's piece, I'm like, this used to be this kind of stuff used to be important to me to take the time to sort of, you know, engage in this and to really think through this stuff and and to appreciate the poetry and and the the relevance of art and stuff like that. And it's just like, what am I doing now? You're looking at BuzzFeed, taking a test to see what kind of rainbow you are. That's what you're doing. I'm reacting. All you can do is react. All you can do is react. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, look, I'm guilty of it as well. I mean, I have a Twitter feed and I and I go to it often and I throw out opinions and I but I also like recommend books. I recommend books and I recommend um, obscure films and or uh, music that I like. But it's true. I'm you know, I can look at myself as part of that problem, too. I see things. I react to them and I put them out there. But what, when, when you say you got done with work for the day, what is your work day? Uh, I try to keep it on par with, uh, you know, everyone else I know who has kind of a nine to five, a, a, a day job. What do you do? You write? I write. <laughs> I do write. I get up in the morning and I have my morning routine and then I'm in my office. And then, which is part of my, it's in, it's in my condo. And so I'm, I'm in my office and then I take a break midday and that break is i never i never do lunches i I can't do business lunch it drives me crazy so i usually go to a movie or i go to the gym and then i come back and then i work until about six or seven maybe later if i've got to finish a project now it's true if there's if i'm under deadline for on something then i will work until 10 or something but that's that's very rare and that's my day and that's you know do you know what you're writing oh completely yeah (laughs) are you writing a novel uh, you know, I was thinking about that driving over here, and I was also thinking driving over. God, how tough it is to just like make it in the world, <laughs> just survive. How do people do it? It's just like a day to day grind. But anyway, I know I, I tweeted this morning. Every day is a mountain. <laughs> That's what it, that was how I woke up. You know, so we were on the same page. Well, yeah, but I'm thinking. I'm just thinking like you know the usual stresses, the usual fears you kind of have early on in the day, where you think, oh, "What's going to happen? Yeah. How's this going to?" No, I got to do that going, thing tomorrow. I got to do that. I got to finish this, and then it's just kind of like you're exhausted by it, and it just ultimately goes away. But um, getting back to the work thing, um, the, oh, the novel thing. I was working on a novel. I started a novel in January 2013. After working on scripts for a year, like fifteen scripts, I wrote. Did anything get made? Two two movies got made, and which were they? Uh, one was a, a movie called Downers Grove, which has not been released yet. And yeah. The other one was The Canyons. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, uh, so I just kind of got hungry for writing prose, mm-hmm. you know, rather than writing scripts. And scripts are fun to write, but got got hungry for writing descriptive kind of prose. Where it's and, just you. And yeah, you where it's just it's, me. Yeah, yeah. No one's going to rewrite it or whatever. And then I just got distracted again, and there's just a problem with this particular story that I want to do, and I'm just not, I just haven't found it yet. It's not necessarily writer's block. Right. I just kind of can't figure out 
if I really want to tell this story, uh, it's about something that happened to me in high school. And is it really, is it a novella? Do I want to write another novella again? Because the last book I published was very short. Um, so yeah, that's where it is. So I don't know about the no- novel. I it just, I have various projects that I'm working on now and I'm finishing. Well, tell me about a Luna, Lunar Park a little bit and how that sort of put to rest this, this father stuff. Well, I had a, I was thinking about writing Lunar Park uh, right after American Psycho was completed. And it, there were two books I wanted to write. One was kind of a, an homage to Stephen King, mm-hmm. which is what Lunar Park ultimately became. And the other was kind of an homage to the international thriller. That book became Glamorama, which I got lost in for like eight years. <laughs> it's an epic book. It kind of half works. I mean, it's my favorite of my books, but it's super divisive among, among fans. A lot of people just hate it. Equally enough, you know, people love it. But so Lunar Park, I didn't feel old enough to approach the Stephen King book because I always knew it was going to be a, about an older man. And uh, he was not going to be a writer at first. He was going to be like a political operator in mm-hmm. Georgetown. So I went and said, OK, I know the world of Glamorama. I know the fashion scene in New York. I know the celebrity world. <clears throat> and it's kind of it. it I kind of preceded Zoolander's about a young male model who becomes a terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> gets gets folded into a terrorist cell. <laughs> and so um and so I knew that world at the time and I wanted to write that book. Uh so uh I, I wrote that book and then as I was finishing up Glamorama, then Lunar Park became much clearer to me. Like I knew it was going to be a lot more about a writer and then it was the writer was going to be me. And I knew it was going to deal a lot with my dad, and I knew it was going to deal a lot with my own career, and I was going to deal with American Psycho, which had been really haunting me in terms of what I was being defined as, and that's fine. Which was what exactly? Uh, The writer of American Psycho. (laughs) That's it. The writer of American Psycho. Yeah. And that's fine, but I wanted to explore that, and I wanted to bring kind of a Patrick Bateman figure back into the suburban setting. And so, um, and really the, the over, uh, you know, the driving, I don't know, the beating heart of uh, Lunar Park was really about finally resolving my issues with my father. Your expectations that were unmet. Yeah. And I felt, because I was still angry with him uh, about just the sheer carelessness of his life. And, you know, he really did put my mom in trouble because of the IRS and the debt. The divorce wasn't really final. And right. It was like there's all this. It was so complicated. And it was so stressful to deal with the aftermath of that. I had to deal with it. I had to stand up and deal with this huge mess that my father was conscious of when he died. And it was, there was a lot of unresolved, you know, feelings about him. And really, in Lunar Park, and this sounds corny, but I, don't, I just don't, I don't care. It just, uh, you know, forgave him, and it just kind of lifts off you. And I remember writing the last month of that when I was writing. There's a, the book ends with this kind of, um, I don't know, this dream vision of my father as a boy growing up in northeastern Nevada, and it was just, you know, it just knocked me out writing this because it was just all about forgiveness, just total forgiveness, and just moving on. And it's hard. Yeah. Real forgiveness is fucking, you know, it's like, you know, people, it's easy to you know pay lip service to forgiving, but Jesus Christ, to really let something go. I don't even know what exactly the inner mechanism is for that. Either it happens or it doesn't. Well, come on. Sometimes, look, sometimes not letting it go can drive you 
right. can really drive you. Right. It gives you an energy. Right. Ultimately, I think it's a negative energy, and you walk into walls, and you kind of get lost in it, you, and it's become just, a comedy of errors. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's it, 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 there's no way that it ends well, and the only way you can, the only thing you can really do is to you know forgive people. I, it just, you, there's no other way. But but, but sometimes the the only the only impetus for for forgiving is just emotional exhaustion. You hit the wall. <laughs> You yeah, hit the wall. I'm sick of feeling this way. Yeah, yeah. You're sick of feeling this way. And what and what could I do with my dead father? Yeah, but- who was I going to talk to about it? Who wanted to listen to it anymore? <laughs> Someone complained about their dead dad. And everyone has their dead dad stories. Everyone has their like, you know, oh, dad yeah. hit me. And yeah, he, yeah. he was cold and remote. It was like, yeah, you know, whatever. Do you remember, though, the, the moment where it was released? I mean, completely. He- I completely remember this. I was in my mom's house. Yeah. The house you grew up in. The house I grew up in. Uh, I was in my old room, and I was staying there. I was staying. I, uh, I was in from New York. Was staying there, and I wanted to write a large portion of the last part of the book in that room. Yeah. I, whatever. Um, magic is magic. And I remember finally doing the pass. This must have been in uh, September, September of uh, 04, September of 04. And I just remember August of 04, September of 04. And I remember doing the final pass on the last two or three pages of the book, literally, you know, feeling it, feeling my chest unconstrict. Wow. Relax. And it was just this huge, profound moment. Like, Did you cry? I've let it go. I don't know if it got that kind of dramatic. I mean, I had cried writing part of the bo- some of the book. Some of the book was kind of moving to write, but ultimately, yeah. So I do remember that very clearly, and it, it just felt it go. In, I in, just felt it go in the magic space that that sort of was your your fortress, your protection. Yeah, it was, and um, yeah, and it just uh, I've I've never had. I don't think I've ever kind of bitched about my dad since then. Now, my sisters, on the other hand, still have unresolved, I think, feelings about their relationship with my dad, but still, but even then, I mean, I, I say that, but it's not as bad as it once was. But ultimately, you're right. You just have to get, you just get to a point where it's not. Yeah, and and, and hopefully shit fades. You know, I mean, like the, the one benefit of, 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 of staying alive, you know, when you have enough heartbreak in your life is that hopefully if you don't commit to it, and become bitter, it will fade a bit. You know, it has to. Right. And being embittered is uh, sucks. It's, it's the not. Worst. It's it's physically painful. No one likes it, and no one wants to be around it. <laughs> yeah. And it's like you know, you just, it. And it's not really that hard to just like make the step over here. You know, yeah, right. It is. It's just a switch. Yeah, it's a it's throwing basically. of the switch and taking the hit. Right. I'm looking at it not as black, but as pink. It's or a whatever. weird mixture of 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 taking the hit and manning up simultaneously. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's it's exactly a, what it is. It's like it's like sort. Okay, I've been humbled, and now I'm going to man up to not be bitter. I find life easier to move through that way. <laughs> yeah. I find it much easier to move through life that way. Well, we're, we're older. We're, we're getting older. So, I mean, it's like you, you can't approach life with the same, you know, irresponsible, passionate anger that you did when you were in your 20s. 
because it like it, it doesn't uh, doesn't age well really no but i think you can still be you know discerning sure you can still be opinionated yeah you can still have a kind of dark view of things right but you can't say like i'm fucked everything i am in that, trouble that that looks ridiculous on anyone <laughs> past a certain age it's ridiculous <laughs> Exactly. Right. I mean, unless you're saying it like, you know, kind of ironically or whatever. But that, yeah, no, that doesn't that doesn't work. Well, before we finish up, let's talk, because we talked briefly on your show that, you know, like I seem to like not unlike my compulsion towards, uh, you know, talking about the denial of death by Ernest Becker. I, you know, I, I found that your contextualization of, of the world we're living in is post empire was was very compelling to me. And I, I don't know why you don't write a longer piece about that. Um, yeah, I, the, the, the piece I wrote a couple years ago about Charlie Sheen, yeah. empire versus post-empire, yeah. or whatever we are. We're, we're in a post-empire world now. Uh, and post-empire is kind of defined by uh, transparency. That really was kind of the theory of just being yourself. And if that means it's Charlie Sheen in meltdown mode, well, that's post-empire. Empire is him in a tuxedo on the red carpet right. faking answers to a news reporter. But I think that it speaks to not only this the, the, the authenticity that comes with with volatility and, and, and a lack of, of control or respect for the context of media, but also that transparency in that way also speaks to the tremendous lack of boundaries on all levels okay yes that example of charlie sheen does but i, I see jennifer lawrence as post-empire i right. see an entire generation coming of age uh without the filters that especially i think i'm somewhere in the middle that i especially see with my parents generation where everyone was kind of everything was kind of a mask everyone did follow a kind of protocol but it was a much more intimate culture media wise yes that's true that's true too you know so you know really looking at the idea that if you think about it during your parents and my parents generation there was no internet there was four tv stations and that's including pbs right and there was maybe five movie studios that right. were really doing things. Right. You know, there was always an off the grid. There was always a fringe. There was always that. But, you know, now the tabloid and fringe has sort of, you know, taken over out of necessity that, you know, that which is really the usurpation of what was that empire, the well, breaking open. Yeah. But also in that empire, you yeah. had a Norman Mailer. Sure. You had a Muhammad Ali. Yeah. You know, you even had in terms of his evasions, Andy Warhol, you yep. know, you had people who right. seemed authentic. Right. I mean, and I know people find that weird that I'm saying I'm throwing Warhol out there, but I feel that he did do. He defined he, he had cultural revel, uh, uh, relevance so, and defined you know, something. And so there w there were certainly people who were. Uh, but for the most part, society like branded them as loonies or crazies or people not New no York. Part of, right. Or New York. <laughs> But um, but I just see it as more kind of the norm in terms of celebrities. You know, sure, there's still the People magazine, yeah. airbrush right. cover story, right. but more or less, it's just how do you not how don't you look kind of ridiculous if you're following these old ass guidelines about presenting yourself in a way if it's not real? Right. Why not just present your real self? You know, show show the crack up. Yeah. You know. Be sure. real. Sure. And, and I think that, I mean, I especially, you know, think that people respond to that kind of realness in a way that I, I don't know if we're ever going to be really able to go back to that, you know, the PR thing, the PR mistake. Well, you know, when Vanity Fair says, we're not dealing with PR people anymore. It was a big moment. Yeah. We're not dealing with it. So if you want to have a profile done, 
come to us, we're not dealing with your PR people, and and you can't approve it. Uh, now, Vanity Fair still is does puffy kind of celebrity c- sure. covers, but you know, there's that's being right. enroaching into into well, the culture. Well, I think just it's just very interesting to see, like you know, sort of bouncing back on or going back to what we were talking about before. Is that what what evolves out of this? Because I I think that the risk of it, you know, in in the idea of post empire, and and I think that ultimately. The, the dominance of tabloid journalism, you know, certainly, and, and predatory sort of media, and that juice of, like, even Twitter, you know, implies something a little bizarre and a little disturbing about culture, and, and, and what, you know, where does the, this who determines what the dialogue is? Is it just this frenetic mess of, of like, you know, waiting for somebody to pop, or some controversy to unfold? What happens to the dialogue of culture? I don't know. Who's in charge of that? <laughs> who did? Well, look... I was talking about this with intellectually, <laughs> you know, niche, yeah, niche, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is niche, right, right. So it's it's findable. You just have to find your. niche. You just have to find it, yeah, and yeah. then you know, it's like how I was feeling about you know, uh, talk a lot of on, on the on my podcast um, about m- loving movies and being a cinephile, mm-hmm. and we're talking about how uh, A.O. Scott published a piece in the New York Times in January about. How you know being a cinephile is outdated. Movies aren't at the center of the conversation anymore. Um, video games are more relevant in a way to the conversation than movies and television, certainly. And I kind of got uh, some of my friends and I kind of got despondent by that because we're making movies, we like movies. And then ultimately, I was talking to Kevin Smith, and Kevin Smith, and we were talking about this notion, and he said, "You know what? I felt I got bummed out too, but you know what? I felt fuck it." If I wanted to have a conversation about movies, I'll have a conversation about movies. It's a niche thing, but I I can still do it. Yeah, right. It doesn't have. Why do I have to be? Why do we have to be interested in something that's at the center? Of- but I but I think that 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 definition of the center. It seems to me that I didn't read A.O. Scott his piece on it, but it's almost like there there you can't be an intellectual and then in and then be some sort of you know apologist in order to keep up with current Absolutely. trends. Absolutely, you're completely correct. Yes. Yes, and, and, and that's what I was doing. I think I got tripped up a bit, you know. And no, I, I didn't get tripped up because I was depressed by it because I was still doing it. Right. And then I realized, fuck it, I am going to still do it. Yeah. But yeah, but but you're absolutely correct. Because that, that then chasing you, that right. Because then you become exactly what we were talking about before: right. somebody who does not respect context or right. history. Exactly. Exactly. Which yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. You, you, like that. The, there's a desperation at the at the heart of even you know uh, uh, you, you know popular criticism. Like somebody like A.O. Scott, not you know, having not read the piece, it's just sort of like don't dismiss that. Right. That's how we got here, and that's you know those things are masterpieces. You can't just say like that's eh, video games now. Right. Yeah, fuck that. Well, no, it was a lament. Right. It okay. was a, it was definitely a lament because okay. you're the film critic for the New York <laughs> Times. You're auto, you're automatically denigrating your own, but it's not denigration. It really is. Everything is a niche now. Niche or niche, niche. whatever, whatever. And and so I feel that kind of brings an enormous amount of freedom in terms it of does. like yeah. you know this whole idea of relevancy, relevancy. You know that's the, that's the big put down. You know, right. well they're not relevant. That's not a relevant thing. What in the hell is relevant anymore? That's right. What is relevant? What Just, is posterity? What is yeah. it? What is? What does it mean? Yeah. And I, when I hear people using relevancy as like a put down, I think. They just don't get it. Yeah, it's just that's gone, baby. You get, yeah, that's gone. Find your people and be relevancy. relevant to them. Exactly. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> yeah. a way to do it. But but see, on, on some level, you know, to me that that feels like a surrender. 
that like if the fight isn't to raise the bar and it's just to find your your choir then then what happens to the bar is there a bar or do we just sort of like well this is our fortress you know, there's a lot of morons out there but right. they're not our problem let's watch this movie do you know you know i don't know that sounds yeah well, now I'm depressed. <laughs> no, 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 no! I'm not depressed. No, I'm not, but but that that you 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 know you do the work you want to do, and it always comes down to that. You're always looking for people to like your work. You want the work to be received, and 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 the weird thing is, is that now you can sort of have a guarantee if you main, maintain some level of consistency with the people that like you that your work will be be received. You know, will be appreciated in in as big a way that you want it to be, or will have the impact. That's no longer important as long as you have. Your your niche right and yeah. you're doing what you, you want to do. to do exactly that's not depressing let's not end no, that is no, no, so no. we're not depressed no, and I, and I don't think surrendering is depressing either i think no. surrendering is good sure you have to yeah uh, a, a little bit thing. right yes because eventually you're just it's windmills you're 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 fighting windmills mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> all right you want to eat the rest of your sandwich yeah are we done yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy talking to that guy. He's an interesting guy, and I think he uh, he warmed up. He, I, uh, I, I, like, I like that guy. I did his podcast too. Go to wtfpod.com, wtfpod.com, wtfpod.com for all your WTF needs. Uh, you can get the app. I would recommend you get the app. I don't, I, I don't want you to get bored with my guitar playing because it's limited.